Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Just went on a cosmic conversation with Brandon Quidham, and it's always a good time having him on the show. Uh, it always gets uh, kind of deep and nuanced, so I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, Brandon is one of the few thinkers in this world that between me, Christian, and Brandon, like we just love to talk about the, the intersection of nature and the rest of the world. And Bitcoin and Ethereum are are that in my mind. And so getting Brandon on to talk about how important nature is when it comes to not only just Bitcoin and Ethereum, but also the free market and all financial institutions at large is really, really important. Uh, for those that don't know, for those that are living under a rock, Brandon Quidem is the Bitcoin mushroom man. He wrote this article called Bitcoin is Mycelium that makes a fantastic comparison between Bitcoin and mycelium, which is which is mushrooms. But, um, you know, it, mushrooms are what you see. Mycelium is what's down in the dirt. Uh, and, and so there's just a fantastic comparison to draw there. And ever since uh, we had Brandon Quinnen back on the podcast over a year ago, Brandon and I and Christian always talk about like the intersections of nature and cryptocurrency because the comparisons couldn't be more salient. As well as backpacking and recording podcasts about cryptocurrency. So uh, we're going to take, next time we record with Brandon, we'll be out in the backcountry and we're going to take the analogy to the next level. But before we do that, let's talk about our sponsor one last time. We're going to do Alto IRA. Um, Alto IRA is the best way to get and trade your Bitcoin and crypto inside of Coinbase, inside of a taxed deferred account. Make sure to, if you use Coinbase, to go check out Alto IRA at POV Crypto backs, uh, sorry, at altoira.com backslash POV Crypto. Um, so that way they know we sent you there. Again, if you want to put crypto into your IRA, you're already using Coinbase, check out Alto IRA, a lot of tax advantages, especially if you're trading. All right, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Brandon Quidham. All right, y'all, we are live. This is CK. You are listening or watching to POV Crypto uh, here with the boy, Brandon Quidham. How's it going, Brandon? I'm doing great. Happy to be back. Uh, you know, Brandon, we brought you on just because it was too long. It's been too long since you came on originally. You've done a ton of stuff. You have, uh, you know, consulted and worked in the Bitcoin industry. You've uh, written several more articles since we last spoke, probably close to a year from now or uh, to this date. So, I mean, what's new in your life and, uh, and how's it going? Yeah, yeah, totally. We must have done the first one uh, like a couple of months after the first Mycelium article came out. Yeah. If I remember. Yeah. That was yeah, one of my favorite, right. one of my first podcasts. That was awesome. Um, so updates in my world in like a year and a half now. Um, Let's see. Well, started at Swan. That's probably the biggest thing relevant to Bitcoin land. Um, I'm doing. Dude, Swan is just sucking in all the talent. All the people that can write and read and speak are like are part of Swan. It's true, Corey. I got to give some credit to Corey. He is an incredible recruiter, visionary, CEO type person, and yeah, he surprises me every day. There's new people jumping in, trying to help out. Um, I also think it points to a kind of a larger need in the industry where the more ideological Bitcoiners believe that existing or let's say the old version of exchanges like a Coinbase for an easy example, aren't necessarily satisfying the needs of the core Bitcoin community. And so I think Swan, um, it's being run well. I see it from the inside. I'm bullish on Swan. I'm obviously biased, but I do believe that. And it's also a really good timing market-wise because Bitcoin, like the quote, Bitcoin only company, is getting a little extra bonus time right now and i think it's you know it just speaks to the fact that it's needed and i'm happy to be on that rocket ship and you know we do want to make a great product and make it easy and we want to just be open arms and collect all your new coiners just send them there make it easy you know one and done set it up and so yeah that's that I thought the dynamic between Cash App and Swan Bitcoin is interesting because, you know, Cash App was this beloved on-ramp by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. 
But now, now when I see people like somebody asks the question, like, how do I get my Bitcoin? Bitcoiners are like cash app, but also Swan Bitcoin. And they're like, they, they know not one has pushed out the other. There's kind of just this, both, both, both are good. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing them juggle, like having both platforms. Totally. And to be fair, the UX on cash app is still superior. You know, we're, we're just getting things going here. We want to make our product as easy as cash app and they still beat us out with the one-time buys. And so, you know, Bitcoiners listen to a bullish podcast and you just got to smash the market buy button. I understand that urge and we're going to put that into Swan soon. Uh, I've heard dates thrown around, but I don't want to be the one to quote a date and have us miss the date. But this year for sure, there will be one-time market buys at a dramatically lower fee than Cash App. Fantastic. So uh, Swan is meant for an on-ramp and onboarding education and just being the vehicle to pass people from the old world to the Bitcoin world. Uh, what, what else is coming to, to Swan? Because that's uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's a very important feature, but it's only one feature. What, what more features are coming to the world of Swan? Yeah, I think let's just say it is only one feature. Let's just say it's a good onboarding platform, which makes nice, easy rails into Bitcoin. And, you know, if that's all it was, I think that would still be a massive business because the bottleneck still is getting people into crypto land is selling their dollars. And so shockingly, well, right. Mm -hmm. Alongside what was that? Education. Yeah, definitely. That, that's hand in hand, right? If we want to just be easy for people to recommend new coiners so that, you know, we'll take on the burden of being IT support guy and take you through the basic stuff. And we're building an education platform. Um, I don't, I'm not sure when it's going to be released, but think like a Netflix for Bitcoin or some sort of a community thing where you can go step by step, get a node, you know, self-custody, why do you do these things, make it easy. And so that's kind of the longer term vision. But right now we just want to win the existing Bitcoin market, make our product best, like, you know, harden the product. And then we'll be able to um, have a good converting product when new masses come into the market, if we assume this bull market's coming. And so there'll be things like, um, you know, maybe some IRA connections into Bitcoin, through Swan and things like that. But we really just see ourselves as top of the funnel, which is education and make it easy. And we want to remove all the foot guns. Like, you know, my personal belief is that the long tail of tokens is just a way to gamble. And so um, companies like Coinbase are just hurting their users. Um, and, you know, I, I don't blame Coinbase, their business, their incentives lead them to uh, slang shit coins and they make money doing that. They're Honestly, they're just copying Binance, but um, there's a lot of money there. And so more power to them. It's just not the right tool for an ideological Bitcoiner. And I think that pool is going to grow. And so, yeah, I, I don't think we have to do much more than that. I guess that's the short answer. Yeah. One of my favorite things that Corey says is uh, selling Bitcoin is selling the best product in the world. It's so easy. Like Bitcoin is you, you trade your bad money for, your, for good money. Um, so I, I definitely resonate with that. Um, one of the reasons why I think Corey and yourself are bullish on Bitcoiners and ideological Bitcoiners growing is kind of the ideas that you hash out in a lot of your writings. Um, and, you know, that's the main reason we're bringing you here is we want to like hash out what's this, how, how do these like uh, brain memes, you know, are these memes uh, kind of grow into community and grow into like networks that actually have value and kind of like talk about that process. Um, I guess, do you want to kind of jump a little bit into like, uh, you know, your thinking around like just how Bitcoin hones chaos and maybe even how, how other things can do that as well? Yeah. So I guess how I see this question is sort of looking at a transition between the industrial age into the information age. And lots of different people talk about this from the sovereign individual to probably hundreds of other books. And if we take that premise as true, um, there will be existing structures, processes, um, ethos, legal structures, nation states, all those things that are optimized for an industrial era don't necessarily uh, work as well in an information age. And so, you know, when I think about what Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is a money for the information age and it, it butts straight head to head with a rigid you know, command and control type structure that we see from the old paradigm. 
And so I, I like to look at that also through the lens of biology. And what we're doing is we're increasing complexity from a rigid command and control to this more emergent complex society that we have. And as we increase complexity, you need a, um, a membrane, let's call it a technology or emergent complex system for money, for governance, for communication, all these things need to be modernized. And you know, I'm obviously focused on the biology side because I personally love it and I keep seeing these overlaps. And so I, I see humans now sort of uh, slowly, but starting to realize the fact that we are a part of nature. I think once we sort of conquered agriculture, conscious technology, we sort of thought we were above nature and outside of it, um, sort of like we became gods in our universe. And we're starting to realize that we can't, uh, we can't live that way forever. There are consequences to the environment, to people, to the future longevity of our species. And so to me, what's going on in the information age is we're actually coming back towards nature, back towards this emergent complex systems. And that, that's just going to be a better way to survive. And if we take, um, let's just take uh, Bitcoin versus central banking, for example. You know, th there's a couple different ways we can look at this, but um, the meaningful difference is centralized control, whether it's government or banking, is similar to a monocrop. Right. And if you look at Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, those are more complex emergent systems they are decentralized and they're, they're much more of an emergent rainforest type approach. And, you know, those are important. Like the, the new money of the future needs to be able to self-organize. It needs to be able to learn and evolve. It needs to have skin in the game and the tight feedback loops that go with it. And it also needs to empower individual units or nodes or people or applications, whatever frame you want to look at, you need to empower the individuals to take risks and explore and build and make mistakes and fail. And some will succeed. And those risks being taken by individuals uh, benefit the whole. And so, yeah, I, I see it as a transition to emergent complexity, which meets the times and, and biology is the right lens because biology already figured this stuff out and we're just stupid monkeys poking at it with a stick trying to see what we can learn. I think the, the nature conversation and the organic derived conversation is some, something I really respect what you are doing, Brandon, because no one is spearheading it more than you. And it's something that I try and, and pay attention to as well. Like one of the earliest aha moments I've ever had in the crypto world came from how strongly these things relate to nature in so many different ways. And missing that connection is almost missing the whole entire thing, right? And so, and this is something, and this is kind of brings us to why I wanted to, to get you back onto POV in the first place was to rehash this organic nature-derived money conversation because uh, to me, that is the fundamental substrate of this whole thing. It's like, this is once again, nature coming to, pr to produce new money for us in the ways that it once did but now it's coming through this new form, this new form of, of money, right? And, and I think this is something that I think, um, I, was, I was listening to you on, I believe it was Tales from the Crypt, talking about how, how Bitcoin mimics nature and nature produces Bitcoin and just that relationship at large. And like, it's, it's uh, unequivocally like how you become bullish, right? Like you, you make the connection that nature is producing this thing and how can you even dare to compete or be against nature? Like who are you to think that nature isn't going to win out? Like nature always wins, nature produced Bitcoin. And so one of the things that I really wished Ethereans, Ethereans would, would uh, really appreciate more because I do not hear this conversation in the Ethereum space is the relationship between these systems and nature. And at the same time, one of the things that I wish Bitcoiners would talk about is how Ethereum mimics very much the same organic, natural, uh, reproductive systems that Bitcoin has. Like Bitcoin uh, and, and you and, and your promotion of Bitcoin as a nature system has this like branding as like a, first off, a mind virus, but also a literal virus that is going on and infecting computers, nodes all across the world. Like you can take the semantics out of the word virus and just kind of understand that like Bitcoin is replicating itself copy by copy by copy over and over the world. 
and then we can talk about like how Bitcoiners are criticizing, uh, you know, Ethereum because the nodes and the data to download the nodes are just way too big. So how can this organic system replicate itself if it's too big? Like that's really what the essence of that conversation is. And so uh, I, I really find all the times that I converse with you and why I listen to all of the podcasts that you recommend, thank you for doing that, because it always comes back to nature. And, and I think that's kind of where I want this conversation to go is talking about the importance of nature in these things and, and organic biology in these things. Definitely. Yeah. I, I really, first of all, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, it's a weird path to pursue biology mapped over Bitcoin, but I, you know, everyone on this call would agree that there's merit there. And it also is intuitive. It, it sort of makes sense to humans because we are of biology, you know, the, the, the steps that, that nature does, we do as well. And so, yeah, I think it, it lands well. Um, I have to give you credit as well, David. I've read most of your articles, and when you do compare it to biology, um, I get super jacked up because these are not my ideas. These are just something I write and continually learn about. And when I'm writing things, sometimes I don't know where the ideas came from. Did I read your article comparing Ethereum to emergent systems and then steal an idea a week later, mash it with my own and publish it? I don't know. You know, Gigi's done great work there as well with Proof of Life series. I know he's got a few articles left to come out of that. And so to me, it's super fun to see um, derivatives of this idea um, remashed together and I learned from it. And I'm so thankful for the Bitcoin community for adopting these because my DMs are flooded with people saying, hey, did you check out this new study about mushrooms over here and over there? And so now there's this inbound that keeps me up to date with way less effort. And so it's a beautiful piece of leverage there. <laughs> um, to get to your real question though, which is how do I view Ethereum here and is Ethereum an emergent complex system? I think that's kind of where you're going. And you know, the answer is yes, of course it is. Um, they, are, they are cut from the same cloth. We can fight over the nuance, but you know, from the analogy standpoint, I don't see a meaningful difference be between Bitcoin and Ethereum. We can talk about like, yeah, full nodes doesn't propagate, whatever. Um, I think those are sort of um, not that important to be completely honest. Um, and so, but the other side of it is analogies have limits. Um, if we would want to talk about meaningful differences, I don't think it would be from a biological lens. However, there are some biological lenses that I'll use to um, push back a tiny bit here. And one of them is, is Gall's Law. And also um, the dude who created Visa, I'm blanking on his name, D. Hawk. Um, there's a paper going on about chaotic organizations that he wrote in the 90s. And his original vision of Visa was actually something that sounds just like Bitcoin. He's saying, hey, we need these complex uh, sort of the, the tension between chaos and order. We need our systems to be built like that versus command and control systems. And so um, from his thing and Gall's law, um, he, he kind of lays out the second law of the universe, which is that I'll just read it verbatim here. Um, simple, clear purpose and principles give rise to complex, intelligent behavior. Complex rules and regulations give rise to simple, stupid behavior. And so very similar to that Gaul's law is complex systems have to start originally from simple systems. This is how our uh, biology works in our body from cells to organs to um, you know, systems in our body to our whole body. And so from that perspective, I think that Bitcoin has a huge advantage because the goal is to keep that foundational layer as uh, restricted as possible, uh, as simple as possible. So we all know these are the rules. There's not a lot of them, but they're very, very tightly controlled. You can't really change them. And so if you have that sturdy foundation, it's much easier to build complexity on top. And so you know, more or less from the beginning, I think that's my major critique with Ethereum is that if you try to do too much on the base layer, you're going to have competing forces. It's not going to be clear. It's going to be harder to recruit people to the vision. And so memetically, it's also harder. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of how I would approach that question. But um, I know I know you wanted to hear the answer of that Ethereum is also a mycelium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I did hear a little like ding in my head when you said that. It's like, yeah. Uh, I, I do want to kick the Ethereum conversation down the road a little bit more and kind of talk about the, the concept of chaotic organization. And like as, as a, 
uh, a shitty definition that I'm going to come up with on, on the spot. Like chaotic organization, as you said, is like kind of this balance between order and chaos, right? And we, we can see this emerge in so many different ways. Uh, largely, part of the culture or values of perhaps the United States of America is you leave people to their own devices because they know what's best, right? And, and when they know what's best, they can do the things that they want to do that produces the most value for the world. And this is supposed to be like in stark contrast to something like the USSR, which what you were talking about like in 1970s, 80s USSR, which what you were talking about earlier where you know, any top-down central planning requires extremely complex rules, and it makes the uh, the people, the citizenry of an of an organization of a nation like this, really just rigid and not able to be expressive or do new things, right? And so, in in, in contrast to the United States, where you are just born and you are just given options, like you can do anything. Obviously, there's much more stuff to, to consider when we talk about like somebody that has options inside the United States, but being free allows you to choose what you do best and, the, and, and express yourself in the ways that you want to express yourself because there's no better alignment with the way to produce value for the world than doing the thing that A, A you are good at and B, you enjoy in some balance between the two of those things. And like the entire world is based on these principles, right? We have seen over time nations rise and fall, religions rise and fall, organizational schemes rise and fall in the name of producing more freedoms for individuals because the group, the body of people that have the most freedoms that are allowed to express what they want to do end up producing the most value and end up producing the healthier, healthiest system, right? Um, do you want to comment on that before I go into a question? Oh, I mean, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I like to look at mycelium in that analogy, which we don't need to go into. But um, a couple of things that stood out is, yeah, that's uh, a way to push complexity to the edge to give freedoms from a libertarian perspective. It'd be remove regulations. Um, you know, there's all these different ways. You're essentially giving agency to the units on the edge, to the margin, where they have the most information and they know the best about their environment, what's good for them and what they're good at. And so if you do not allow that, you're rigid, you're USSR, everything is planned, um, you just lock down all that human productivity instead of unleashing the human productivity um, that's just stuck inside people in this rigid little box. And it's the same with humans. You know, if you want to be creative, don't sit down and schedule a 30 minute creative block. That's not how it works. Like expose yourself to new ideas. Go for a walk without your headphones. Go play. You know, kids are so creative. They're just playing. There's no rigid rules. They just make up a game called the floor is lava. And they're just oozing with creativity. And we get older and we get rigid and we kind of just get stuck in our little box. And that's also reflected in how we think and how we act. And it also creates things like neuroticism and um, damn kids get off my lawn type attitude, um, which is somewhat normal because, you know, you're older and you're more conservative and you want to raise your kids or whatever. But if you want creativity, that's not the way to do it. So I'll let you <laughs> ask your question. I want to pull CK in on this because I'm going to have, I mean, going to need some help coming to this conclusion, but I want to, I want to circle jerk a little bit more about how chaotic organization is so awesome, but the ultimate, uh, manifestation of chaotic organization, at least when it comes to markets is the price of things. Right. And so I, I have a couple of very, very far left, uh, you know, radically far left liberal friends who believe in things like rent controls or, or, you know, controls of this nature where the price of things is determined from like a top down system. And in my mind that nothing is more like blasphemous for getting what you want, especially when it comes to rent control. Like if you want to have housing for, for all cheap, affordable housing, like maybe rent controls sounds good in the moment and it is beneficial for that one moment that it is implemented. But when you control price down the line, everything falls apart. Right. Like, and so I kind of want to get to the conversation of how incredibly sacred price is and why it's such a terrible idea to try and control price. Uh, CK, you want to, you, you've been silent for a little bit. You want to hop in? Well, I mean, I guess if I were to comment on that, like, it's really interesting to think about like, what does price mean today? Like we're operating in an economic system that is unknown to everyone. 
the Fed doesn't know what is happening in this economic system. People in Europe don't know what's happening. There's so much shadow banking happening. Like the free market is like very, very, very opaque. Um, and it's difficult for people to actually make good decisions. So uh, this is an idea that Ansel has been like kind of like seeding in my mind, but like down the line, only sound money systems will actually have growth because they're literally just the only place that people can actually make good economic calculation. And that is where growth is going to come from. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess, you know, talking about just th this, this subject matter, uh, I, I think that's like really important. Totally, totally. Um, and just to define like price and why it's so important in case people aren't familiar with this, um, you know, you think about a price like the price is set by the company or whatever, but if you zoom way out and you look at an entire economy, um, the price is actually the end result of a complex equation that is impossible to uh, calculate. And that is all the sum total of all individual economic actors acting in their rational or irrational best interest. And if you, if you sort of distort that, you're, you're essentially removing a piece of the equation. Um, information is not traveling through the system appropriately. So, you know, equal sign answer of price is going to be wrong. And in one little instance, okay, no problem, you know. But if you continually do this, what you're doing is you're just building up risk and you're hiding that risk in dark little corners in the economy. And then all it takes is a couple strippers who bought too many houses in Florida in, in 07 and the whole entire global financial system collapses. You know, that, that shouldn't happen. And if you have a system where uh, the price signals are more clear, people know the rules of the game and the price dictates how much to buy, how much to sell with decisions to make on the economy. And that's super, super important. And, you know, to, to found back to what CK was saying about making real uh, good investments. You know, this is all based on the fact that there are scarce resources and talent is not evenly distributed. And so we have to accept the fact that scarcity is real. It's real in biology. It's real for us. Um, I don't see a post-scarcity world, although that sounds really nice. Um, and so if scarcity is real, then there's only so much capital. There's only so much talent. And so as a species, what we want to do is we want to allocate the best people to work on the most important problems and have the best chance of success. And in order to do that, you do need clear and accurate price signals. And so that leads to good investments and good investments are what leads to real growth. And real growth is what equals real wealth and that real wealth gets distributed into society. And so another thing that frustrates me, speaking of the far left, the fact that there are people saying we need to move past capitalism into this utopic, beautiful vision of fairies and rainbows. Um, okay, here's the deal, left-leaning people, which I used to come out of. Um, you identified same, a problem same. correctly. Okay, there is a real problem. Economics are not working for the most people. That is fundamentally true. But you've diagnosed that problem with an incorrect solution, which is we need to manage the economy better. Um, that's not the answer. The answer is to remove the centralized control, which it will be scary in the short term, objectively. I don't know how to make this transition, but it is better for everyone in the long term. And it's the only way to rise the, the rising uh, tide raises all ships. In order to pick up the bottom, increase the middle class again, we need to go back to a money that's accurately represented in the market, um, which is my belief, Bitcoin. We can argue about that later if we choose, but at least something that's more accurately uh, represented information in the market. And so, yeah, I'll pass, I'll get down off my stump. Well, so as soon as you start like dictating what the price should be, you're doing something that is different from the free market, right? And so there's the price on the free market and then there's like this subjective belief that the price should be something else, which is already like a weird thing to think because the free market knows more than you, as we've said. But as soon as we like dictate what the price of something should be, then all of a sudden we create inefficiencies that some people lose uh, you know, some people lose that game, some people win that game, but you also create room for some people to gain that game, right? You, you, uh, that efficiency leaks value. And like, I'm speaking in very general terms and I'm not going to be able to fix that problem just because this is such a uh, abstract concept. But when you, 
And there's a friction between what the price on the market should be and what it actually is with something like price controls. And that difference allows somebody to slip in and like leverage that friction, leverage that energy between the discrepancy for their own benefit. And since the price controls is a political uh, Thing to do anyways, there's always, always going to be bias towards some party or another. And so like, sure, with like some, the concept of rent control, we're trying to bias it in the benefit of the individual or, or the, the many, uh, the, the, the people, the, the, the amalgamation of a, a nation or something. But ultimately what happens is you generate massive inefficiencies in the market. And so, and this is something that like, I don't even think it's up for debate with economists. It's only the only people that think that like rent price controls are good are people that don't really understand economics because as soon as you in, put in rent control, you reduce uh, the, the cost of rent and you allow for the overconsumption of an apartment unit. And so you might have like one single 45 year old dude who has a nice salary renting out a like three bedroom apartment in some town where his two extra bedrooms are unfilled because he doesn't need to fill them, but he can afford it because of rent controls. And so it, it, it ultimately just creates more inefficiency and then ultimately more anger because there's less supply of whatever the thing that we're talking about is available. And then we, and then we have this conversation coming from like the radical left saying, Hey, things aren't working. Let's manage it more. When in fact, like the only reason why I think capitalism isn't working for people these days is because the capitalism that we have in, in modern days is not actual capitalism. It's, 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 uh, it's capitalism that's been corrupted by perhaps it's the crony capitalism. Or the, it's crony capitalism. It's just, it's just corrupted capitalism. And so like, I think the answer isn't less capitalism. It's more capitalism. Let's have fairer capitalism because the capitalism that the far left thinks that we've had is not at all capitalism. And just to add a little bit, like one of the things I kept ringing in my head as you're talking is the Cantillon effect. Those closest to the money printer, those who understand how to navigate the political uh, and regulatory landscape to get the free money during the money creation times, those are the people that benefit the most. And also those holding assets right now, obviously are benefiting the most too. So um, just... The people that are closer to the money printing, those are people who are going to benefit and it's always going to reallocate capital. It's not about um, increasing productivity. Money printing doesn't do anything other than take wealth from one area and move it to another place. And it's typically directed by, you know, po political or structural kind of things and forces. And we, we backed ourselves into a corner here, you know, as soon as we allow a centralized party to manage the money system and all of a sudden the stock market collapses in 1929, um, what happens? We respond and we create all these new things in response to that issue like FDIC insurance, which sounds like a good thing. But what does FDIC insurance do? It gives a false sense of security to potential bank customers who say, I don't care what bank I use because I'm covered. Instead of saying, hmm, what bank loans out their money well? Who has a good uh, capital ratio or whatever things you might use to determine your bank? So again, we're removing the market forces in banking, which builds risk. And if you extrapolate, let's say 80, 90 years to a centralized party preventing issues from collapsing, you're just building up the pile of risk and you're just shoving it in the corner. And so the system is just all these shadows and big bad guys, let's just say, or I don't know, that's not a very good term, but people go and they hide in the shadows and they rent seek out of the system. And it's hard for us to stop that process. And a nice analogy is a public ledger where the entire economy on chain is for the world to see. And through that, we might see uh, a better option for hiding risk or exposing risk and letting that play out when it needs to versus sweeping it under the rug. And now, now the Fed's buying everything. They're, getting, they're buying corporate bonds. Um, they say we're the, the last market. buyer of last resort for all treasuries. They're doing side deals. You know, just sell your treasuries to me. We'll give you dollars. Don't put them on the open market. <laughs> and they built themselves in this corner. They don't have a choice because if they don't do that, we will see a massive uh, sweep of the whole market. And, you know, I'm glad I have Bitcoin when that happens.
And, and this is why Nick Carter is like so bullish on the concept of like free banking, uh, a re a repeat of like the free banking era, but with Bitcoin. And so like the, the golden age of Bitcoin of, of, excuse me, the golden age of free banking, according to Nick Carter, uh, came like in the UK and Scotland when they used gold and there's almost no regulation on the banks. And so the free market regulated the banks, right? Nature regulated the banks. And so like what Nick Carter is so bullish on is like in a resurgence of the free banking era, where instead of government regulations dictating how banks act, the Bitcoin protocol regulates how banks act, right? Like we are taking the regulations from a top-down subjective authority and we are putting it into Bitcoin. And the, the regulation that Bitcoin offers is 21 million. That's it. That's the whole thing, right? And so we, we like, like at the very beginning of this conversation, we are removing complexity, right? We are removing uh, this subjective top-down rules-based uh, system and just moving it to like, okay, enough of all that nonsense. Just Bitcoin now regulates the banks, right? Like the Bitcoin is the money that the banks have to answer to. And Bitcoin is ultimately just a manifestation of the free market in the first place of nature, right? And so it's, it's going back to like allowing nature to really dictate the world around us rather than thinking that we can control nature. Yeah, totally. And speaking of free banking, in that sense, Bitcoin is just the best version of collateral that we've ever seen. And Ethereum is also a form of collateral here in a similar sense. Um, but if you're looking at the banking system, um, yeah, Bitcoin dictates the monetary supply that those rules are fixed. But at the banking layer, what happens is people decide, people choose which banks to use. And so um, I think that's where you're heading, but just wanted to clarify that. An individual can decide, I will take more risk with this bank in order to see a higher return on my deposits. Or I want a 100% forward serve bank. I'm taking no risk, but I'm also getting no interest in return. And so theoretically, you let um, all those different banks compete. And as long as they don't um, you know, gang up on you or whatever, theoretically, it's, it's good enough for banking services. Well, we're already seeing this in the in the crypto and Bitcoin space. Like we have a wider range of different storage and custodial options, like some that give you yield because they're going to be rehypothecating it. Some like Unchained Capital, which are um, three, uh, three keys. You hold two, they hold one. Um, or if you get a loan, uh, then it's like three keys, you hold one and there's an independent third party. So like, we're already seeing the wide range of different banking options with new Bitcoin as collateral and crypto as collateral. Cause I mean, this is effectively things that you can do with everything. Um, so uh, it'd be interesting just to like follow how the crypto ecosystem continues to play out right now. The crypto, the crypto ecosystem gets you way higher rates on your, on your dollar uh, across the board. Like there's no question about that. So I don't know how much of that is actually organic and sustainable, but uh, we'll see how it will continue to compete. Okay, so to, to wrap up this conversation, I do want to uh, make my case for Ether. Brandon, you earlier you talked about how like Bitcoin is this hyper simple uh, base layer, which allows express uh, expressivity to, um, uh, which allows complexity to express itself at the edges, right? Like away from Bitcoin, separate from the actual base base chain. And like, this is a, a conversation that we all, we frequently talk, uh, I talk about on POV crypto and at large in the crypto space, like where does complexity belong? However, I would actually contend that Bitcoiners falsely think that Ethereum is really all that complex when I don't really think that it is. And maybe in comparison to Bitcoin, it's more complex, but in the grand scale of complexity, you know, if, if there's one end of the spectrum where it's hyper simple and Bitcoin is pretty close to that end, Ethereum is pretty adjacent to that, like definitely closer to the complex end. But really the only thing that's all that novel to Ethereum that isn't on Bitcoin are, is very, very few things. One is an EVM, which allows for the expressivity of complexity, but also keeps it containerized so it doesn't imp impact the rest of the protocol. And then gas. That's, a, that's really the only two things that are new or novel to Ethereum that really isn't in Bitcoin. And then there's also like the debate between the UTXO model and account balances. But I, I think those are equal in complexity. And so 
Bitcoiners love their, their simple design, but I think they think that Ethereum is way more complex than it actually is. I think Ethereum allows uh, for complexity to be expressed inside the EVM, which is the Ethereum virtual machine where all the Turing complete stuff happens, but it's packaged up and bundled in a way that it can't escape from that and impact the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the chain. And so th this, is my, uh, this is my rebuttal to the uh, Ethereum is, is a complex uh, statement. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and you know, I, I don't strongly disagree that, that Bitcoin and Ethereum are much more closely aligned than probably people would like to argue. Um, but there's only going to be one internet money that will take the lion's share of the market. That's my belief. Um, and so when I think about Ethereum, some things that I would knock it on um, or the fact that at the base layer, it's not actually as rigid uh, from a social contract layer and from a code layer on what that base layer is. And there's also a, uh, you know, it's a pro and a con, but Ethereum has the ability to be everything. And so with that comes competing interests. And I think we're going to continue to see uh, forces in Ethereum that are uh, uh, political forces that have opposing views of Ethereum. And that, from a long-term perspective, makes the foundation a bit more porous in my mind. You're going to see tensions, and they both can't be—they both can't win in the protocol layer, and they might fracture the social layer. Um, I don't need to bring up the DAO hack, but I think I—I I, I would agree that the Bitcoin monetary policy is much stronger. Um, Ethereum's monetary policy is, I think, trending in the right direction. I think Ethereum community is trending in the right direction, and by what I mean by that is becoming much more like Bitcoin which is quite funny, I would um, agree. Is especially considering all this maximalism hate. Um, <laughs> it's complete, complete short-sighted nonsense from the Ethereum community because you guys actually want that. You just don't want to admit it yet. And there is a rising force of Ethereum maximalism. Um, I think the term is charged and I think what people think it means is, is this bad thing and it can mean many things, but you want ideologically motivated people who are fighting for the number one money. Um, so that's just a couple riffs and then I'm going to tie it all together with an analogy. And so I kind of already started this with a porous foundation of Ethereum. And so if you're going to build a building, you're going to build a skyscraper in order to do that, you want to build it on a solid foundation. And so um, if you want to build a, you know, a fast structure, you want to build something that's quick to get up, you might build it out of wood. And so I, I view Ethereum as a, as a wooden structure. You can, you know, you can innovate very quickly. You can build things, um, you know, rookies can learn carpentry overnight, let's say. Um, but what, what that also does is you can't build as high. You can't, you can't build um, as, as long. It's not going to survive as long because wood's susceptible to rot. It's susceptible to fire. And, you know, Bitcoin is like building on a granite foundation. It's built to last a thousand years. And so I think those are kind of the, the two ways to look at this. And funny enough, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our capital is actually St. Paul, but Minneapolis and St. Paul are right next to each other, split by a river. And they're called the Twin Cities. They're very similar. And a long time ago, uh, Minneapolis was built out of wood. And so St. Paul was built out of stone, just a strange thing that happened. And about 50 years ago, Minneapolis burnt down, or maybe it was 100 years ago. Minneapolis all burnt down. And so now what you have is Minneapolis is this super modern glass city that's, that's new. And St. Paul looks like it was made 400 years ago by drunk Irishmen, which it kind of was. And so... Yeah, you kind of see the test of time and it's in my backyard. I'm, I'm seeing Bitcoin and Ethereum um, play out. It's interesting to see that the, the, uh, the side that was made with wood is the new, more modern side. That, that is interesting. It also has more culture objectively. I chose to live in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But one city is built to last and, and St. Paul will be built of stone for another 500 years. And you know, chintzy, fast fiat architecture in Minneapolis is going to look out of style and it's not built to last. And so if there's a tornado or a natural disaster, Minneapolis will rebuild again. Mm -hmm. And St. Mm -hmm. Paul will shrug their shoulders. So, okay, I mean, hey, yeah, I mean, just to kind of put in my two cents here too, 
uh, it's been really incredible to see Ethereum and the ecosystem kind of like grow into this uh, chaotic organization and like really have like this true distributed nature. Um, but there are a lot of like buts when you kind of like have that conversation. And then on top of that, you can't ignore that what is happening organically right now is in jeopardy because of the actions of the Ethereum community. The Ethereum community is taking something that is currently very, very great and very, very successful, and they're deciding to move to the next thing. Um, I don't know like, if that is necessarily the best decision for Ethereum's health as a network. Like, That's definitely a roll of the dice. There's a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of ideological aspects to it. Like we must have proof of stake. We must do this stuff. Mining is bad, which I think mining is really good. So um, I don't know. Like uh, I think that there's just a lot of buts when it comes to to Ethereum, and maybe that's the difference between Bitcoin and and Ethereum, and that's the difference between uh, you know uh, a granite foundation. Yeah, no doubt. If, if Ethereum wants to compete, they should forget the words proof of stake, just throw it in the dumpster and never talk about it ever again and stay on proof of work, which is the most fundamental breakthrough in this whole entire thing we've been talking about is tethering money to scarce resource of energy. Okay, well, yeah. since we opened up that can yeah. of worms, I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Uh, and I've, I've made this argument with, with other people in the Ethereum community. I think if Ethereum sticks on proof of work, it's ceiling for how awesome or successful it will be will just be significantly capped. Uh, and and not, that's not to knock proof of work. And I, and I, I think like the, the Ethereans that I think the most similar to would also say that like there's nothing wrong with proof of work. It's just that proof of stake is much more fitting to what Ethereum wants to be, right? Proof of stake would not work for Bitcoin. That would be a disaster. Bitcoin belongs to be proof of work. And in the same vein, Ethereum belongs to be proof of stake. Like Ethereum is supposed to have this internal economy, this internal ecosystem that generates the perpetual motion machine that allows for these systems to be self-referential in the first place. And because it has that internal economy, it does get to be proof of stake because it's the internal economy that allows proof of stake to not to be self-referential, but also to have real meaning there. Like self-referentialness or self-referentiality is kind of viewed as like a weakness. It's kind of viewed as like a Ponzi. It's just like it's all going to collapse at some point. But if you throw in an economy into that, that economy is the perpetual motion machine that keeps on adding energy to the system. And so a proof of stake alongside an internal economy, uh, the, the fact that it is actually not tethered to uh, electricity, not tethered to the real world, I think is so fucking bullish. I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> I just completely disagree. Um, what I would say is that for Ethereum to have a chance at outcompeting Bitcoin, and I view this chance as astronomically small, just to be fair, um, but if there is a chance, I think Ethereum needs to shoot the moon. And the reason is because Bitcoin has a tremendous advantage. And I, I think that advantage is actually getting uh, wider. It's, it's wider than it was in 2017, in my belief. Contrary to um, the hype of the day in Ethereum land, like um, yield farming and all this other stuff that is going to be a flash in the pan, um, in my belief. But yeah, if you want to compete with Bitcoin, you're going to have to differentiate yourself. So I would say that's probably the, the main argument that I can stand with uh, in support of proof of stake. And, you know, you could also make the argument that we can't afford two proof of work uh, systems. They're going to compete for energy at the end of the day. And so if there's, um, yeah. yeah, if there's energy to be had, um, the question would be, is it more profitable to mine Bitcoin or Ethereum? And so at the end of the day, that would necessitate one winner and one loser in proof of work. And so proof of stake does allow for different options. It is much more similar to what our current economy is. And so I see Bitcoin is actually much more radical. And I think people don't really, I think Ethereum people that I butt heads with think that Ethereum is just this meme religion. And I think what they're missing is that Bitcoin is extremely radical relative to our current financial system. 
and a fixed supply, a, a money based on scarce energy, those are extremely radical. And a deflationary environment is also a huge change from the last 50 to 100 years. Whereas Ethereum is essentially saying, we're a central bank, but we put in fail safes in place to prevent uh, mistreatment of the money supply. And that, that's essentially recreating what we have. And DeFi is essentially over financialized uh, of our economy. And I, I just um, personally think that a more radical solution here is the right approach. And I, I firmly believe that Bitcoin is that right approach. It, it blows my mind every single day. And when I watch Ethereum, I'm like, yeah, cool. We, we do that right now with our banks. But now you have cooler logos and it's decentralized and it's automated. And maybe some of that's good um, or maybe it ends up being good. But I, I personally don't want a future where we have this. Um, I, I, I shouldn't say I don't want. I don't think we need a future with an overly financialized layer. I don't think we need to yield farm and quadruple, triple axle derivatives and all this stuff. Like the, the good thing about yield farming is it's really hard to get involved with it. So new people aren't just throwing money into the casino because there's a large barrier to entry. Um, anyways, I just threw a lot of, a lot of worms out. The logos are cooler. That is true. That is true. Well, so in defense of, of like DeFi, there's a lot more of like this meme around like full reserve. And that's kind of how Ethereum works in general. So I think that's like you can defend that. But on the flip side, uh, Bitcoin makes life so much more simple. I was listening to this two and a half hour podcast uh, about MMT. And like the operation of making MMT works requires the government being able to measure every single aspect of every single um, thing in the economy. So that way that they can allocate things appropriately. And while it sounds really smart that this guy is saying like, oh, you have to consider all of these different things before you make a decision. You can't just make a butthead decision. The reality is, is that every politician is just making butthead decisions. So like, good luck, dude, like giving more power to politicians doesn't work. But I guess not to go on a tangent here, but um, in general, like, I guess it, it just seems like Bitcoin is about making all of that so much more simple. And I just don't know if DeFi does that. Like, I don't, I feel like DeFi is not necessarily about making money more simple and making the system more simple. It's about uh, doing something uh, that's more akin to financialization and more complex finance. Yeah, so, so I, I'm, I push back on whenever people say like DeFi is more complex than like traditional finance. Because like DeFi is fundamentally based on primitives, right? Like the you need primitives in order to have finance, and first first come primitives, and then comes finance. But what comes what's different in Ethereum is that everything is completely sound. And, and Christian mentioned this just a moment ago. Like there's no fractional reserve. There's no like create like the the oracles that are used in traditional finance are just like one dude with a calculator where in ethereum it's like it's a huge problem that we're trying to solve and we're trying to solve in many different ways and so while like in comparison again in comparison to bitcoin way more complex in comparison to traditional finance it kind of splits the difference i would say it splits the difference on the bitcoin side where like since everything is sound and everything is over collateralized, there's not much more room for financialization. Like crazy DeFi yield farming is this new phenomenon. Who knows how much it sticks around? Really, yield farming is really this uh, decentralization. AMP. We'll get to AMP. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that, that has some like crazy crazy experimentation going on it, no dude like part of the values of ampleforth is how simple it is because it is a primitive like it maybe it's it like and, and this is kind of the the fallacy that i think i see bitcoiners making a lot is like they they look at it and they don't understand it and they say that no one's going to get this but like 99 percent of people who ever discovered bitcoin originally thought that about bitcoin as well and so like some of these things on, on Ethereum, like Uniswap, like Balancer are actually really simple. It's just, we haven't reoriented our brain to understand them yet in the same way that we all did that through Bitcoin. I don't know, but like just to push back, okay, whatever, the UX UI is simple, but like the economy that is based around utility governance tokens and all of this stuff, like the things that you'd be trading, this infrastructure for doing all of these like speculative trades, like. Bitcoin is destroying that 
I, I think it's destroying the necessity for that. I think Bitcoin is literally making a world where you trade goods for money and there's a lot, lot less speculation and only very specific trained people will be doing a lot of speculation outside of starting their own business. Like I think right. the world just literally takes a few freaking steps back on like the financialization uh, level. And like, I think that's really freaking positive. Yeah, like I, I understand how like Bitcoin is a DeFi and financializing force, but like DeFi is also a de-financializing force. I understand how it has finance in the name, but like again, in comparison to the rest of finance, we, we need finance. Finance is important. It doesn't need to be complex. It should be simple. And in my opinion, that's what DeFi is. It's simple finance. I hope that's true, that it needs to be true. Yeah, and, and the things that are like complex and stupid and weird about DeFi are just probably going to be relegated to history and all the simple things. Like this is why Uniswap is such a fantastic application that everyone on, on Ethereum loves is because of how incredibly simple it is. It's a balance of two tokens and the ratio of those tokens produces a price. That's the whole thing. And Balancer is just instead of two tokens, there's eight tokens. And we, it just says the same thing. They're very, they're very simple features. It's just that we haven't really had anything to compare them with. Yeah, like right, Shrootbucks well, and um, Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Like, what is the ratio of a Shrootbucks to a Chuck E. Cheese token? Yeah, yeah. You, you say that's that now. That's why you need Balancer. Yeah. Chuck E. Cheese token has a, a two, $2 billion market cap. And all of a sudden, it's more, a little bit more than, it's actually worth more than Chuck E. Cheese at large. Wait, so. It's just filed I mean, but, for bankruptcy. What is that? I feel like that is like the OG Chuck E. Cheese token. That, but, um. Token, that's true. And, it, and it's, it's still one of the things in there. So that just shows you the state of collateral. But um, I think this is, we're, we're definitely going a little long. I think it was a good time to wrap it up. Uh, this episode had a little bit of everything, especially agreeing and disagreeing. Uh, so Brandon, thanks for coming on and uh, making another uh, POV classic. Dude, my pleasure. Always love coming on with you guys. Um, it's nice having uh, some opposing forces, but we all have a kind of a, a foot in the same center mm -hmm. of that Venn diagram. So I think it produces interesting conversations and I appreciate what you guys do out there. So thanks for having me again. Likewise, this is where the knives get sharpened. Brandon, if uh, people want to follow you, where should they go? Yeah, easiest place is Twitter. Uh, handle is bquitem, Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. You can check me out on my website, brandonquitem.com. Also have a medium, but I'll be putting most of the new articles on my personal site. And uh, we mentioned Swan early on. If you are new to Swan and you want to sign up, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash quitem. And when you sign up for a plan there, you'll get $10 in free Bitcoin. And we didn't really explain what it is, but it's just an automated savings plan. You go set up, I want to buy $50 a week or whatever, $100 a month, set it, connect it to your bank account, hit go. We auto buy for you, pulling directly from your bank account. We have the lowest fees and you can also auto withdraw to cold storage. So you just set it up and you're just auto stacking for the long term. If you plan on moving your value into Bitcoin over the near term or the long term, Swan is the product for you. Damn, hire me. David, too. <laughs> All right, guys. Call Brecky, get you a, a Swan Force link, slash David Hoffman coming out. Oh, yeah, I could do it. I'm a flexible individual. All right, you guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? Yeah, you can find me at CK underscore Snarks, as well as at Bitcoin Magazine. Make sure to check out everything going on over there. Um, yeah, thanks everyone for watching or listening. Peace. Peace. Thanks, Brendan. Later, guys. All right. Stream is over. Good job. Fantastic. Good episode. That was fun, guys. That was super fun. Yeah. I prepared for all those bullets you sent, and we didn't really get to the second half, but I'm really glad that we didn't because <laughs> I think we stayed in a really fun place. Yeah, no. That's it, hard that's to talk what, about. What the template's for. Yeah. Uh huh. We'll talk about some of these things. <laughs> yeah, that's way hey, Sometimes better. we actually had them all too, but. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay. I almost uh, feel like getting through the list is a bad thing. It's because, you know, you didn't get to go deep in. The, right. No, and you didn't have a conversation. True, you had a list, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, we, I can't have a conversation about complex emergent systems with everyone. Right.
And so I'd way rather have that conversation with you guys and some of the more like easy stuff mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. else. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, me and Christian are about to record an intro uh, and we're, this is going to go out uh, tomorrow, Christian. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, do we, don't, we don't have one for tomorrow. Tonight. Yep. yep. Sorry. Beast mode. I'm doing two podcasts tonight, baby. I, I, can, I can edit this one. I don't have, I don't have a net podcast edit tonight. Okay. Well, I'll give it to you then. Yeah, no, I'll take it. Sweet. Next time, okay. let's talk about is Bitcoin using us or are we using Bitcoin? Oh, it sounds like that's a rabbit hole that we'll have to go into. Should we schedule that right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down that psychedelic rabbit hole and like, that's where my mind's going. I'm sort of bored yeah. of the same old shit. And so I'm studying outside and there's a lot of fun stuff there, but I won't hold you guys. Appreciate it, fellas. See you, Brandon. Hope to see you guys in person. You know, in the next like five years, whenever the shit's over. Yeah, whenever, whenever. Yeah, when Yellowstone. Dude, I almost, I mean, actually if you would have said, though. yeah, I'm down. I could do, I could probably squeeze in a September, October backpacking trip or November, December if the weather's fine. David. Oh, yeah. Yeah. David's a I, will, backpacker. I will prioritize it. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I have do done Olympic. It's in your guys' neighbor neighborhood, yeah. Olympic National Park. I, I've been in the Olympics every other weekend for the past like seven or eight weeks. I've yeah. I've done the most amount of psychedelics I've ever had in my life in the last like four weeks. <laughs> no wonder why your shirt I, looks like that. How, how is that? <laughs> I can't do psychedelics, y'all. Not anymore. No longer. Outgrew them. I don't know, man. Like I just don't do acid, but I like acid a lot more than shrooms. So yeah, acid better. I just shrooms. don't do them. Yeah. Sorry, different man. tools different i mean i love oh, lsd the, but the there are different no they're so different. i can't i can't tell the difference i also can't tell the difference between sativa and indica so don't trust me mm, that's yeah. surprising yeah yeah people well, i'm glad that. you're in the woods a lot the whole rainforest is a special place yeah absolutely absolutely yeah all right dudes hey, we could we could do this forever right. but let's, let's talk backpacking yeah backpacking and and another pod let's do yeah. that awesome all the stuff so maybe at the same time <laughs> Ooh, that would be interesting. Yeah, Sit right. around the fire. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just do it on the phone. Alright, dude. I think that's a mission we have to do. Pod mm-hmm. during backpacking. Alright, bye.